So in our family, we've always um, tried to eat as much food as we could raise. Like whenever we can raise food, we do. Um, my dad's always raised cattle. So since we got married uh, and whenever possible, we try to eat his beef. Um, and uh, since we've got a little land, we've eaten all kinds of our own animals, um, some hunted um, by us and friends, some uh, we raised ourselves, but uh, we love to eat our own you know, stuff that we uh, produced. Plus, any vegetables and herbs we've ever been able to grow, grow which I'm terrible at. Esther's not bad, but... Um, but I remember the very first food we ate on like our new piece of land, we had and still pretty much have this giant, ridiculous wild blackberry bush. And we picked a bunch of wild blackberries and, uh, and Esther made a big blackberry cobbler, you know, and we sat there and kind of drew attention to the fact that this is the very first thing we're eating off of our land, like the very first bite of food. And then we picked the seeds out of our teeth for like four hours because wild blackberries are terrible with those seeds, but, um, but it was kind of cool, but, uh, so we've eaten a ton of stuff since, but my favorite story about, like, eating our own food, because we're, we're naming this, we're, t- we're titling this message Farm to Table, um, uh, was, is, it wasn't actually my land, it was my dad's land, and it's about frogs, um, and we used to have this, like, annual tradition of camping out at my dad's, we'd take the kids, a couple other families, we'd go quite a ways back on the land, and we would camp out for the night next to this little pond, and, and, uh, and we'd have a good time. The kids would run around and explore, and all the adults sit around the campfire and drink uh, soda. Um, and then we would, um, <laughs> and we had this tradition of catching bullfrogs um, after dark in the pond right next to our campsite. Uh, and so one year we had several families with us, and we took some extra gear, and we were not only bullfrogging, we were teaching the kids to bullfrog. And so... Um, we had a bunch of like early middle-aged girls like bullfrogging with the boys and loving it. Like they were out there um, catching frogs, and we uh, and uh, so we. Had, by the time like I had the new hunters kind of established, showed them what to do. The the veterans had already caught four or five bullfrogs, and they were bringing them over to me. And we finished with like four or five five-gallon buckets full of bullfrogs. Like we had a lot of bullfrogs, and uh, and so about the time you know I get some people established, I'm, I've already got a bunch that need to be. Dispatched, and uh, and so I'm I'm over there, and and I take care of a couple of them. When this girl that we had brought named Gabrielle um, brings me her newly caught frog and sees what I'm doing to them, and she apparently had no idea we were going to kill the frogs, and so um, she goes nuts. You didn't tell me you were going to kill. This is wrong. Like this is inhumane. You can't do this. They didn't do anything to you. And there's flailing limbs and and emotions and tears and all kinds of stuff. And I was honestly fairly unmoved, but a little confused because all day my boys have been talking about how awesome frog legs are for breakfast. Like, so I don't know how she thought we were going to get the legs off the frogs without killing them, but, but, um, but, uh, but she refused to, to be a part of this anymore. And she stomped back to the campsite and, uh, and that was the last we saw of her that evening. And so about the time we feel like we had pretty much hunted this pond as much as we could hunt it, we, uh, uh, we put, sent the kids to bed and I went over, sat by the campfire to process the frogs and get all the legs on ice. And the next morning, I get up early and, uh, and I, uh, I got a hot fire going and I'm fixing my signature campfire hash, which is a die for, by the way. Ask me for the recipe later. It's, it's killer. But, um, I've got a fresh batch of, of frog legs. We have this huge campfire pan sauteing and garlic butter. And, uh, the kids start waking up to the smell and they're all coming, you know, my kids like it's old hat come over. They get some hash and a couple frog legs and 
you know, they're going by and Gabby comes by and she gets some hash and like two frog legs. And I was like, okay. And so she goes and I mean, her butt had not hit the chair for 10 seconds. She comes back over. Could I get some more frog legs? I was like, hold on one second. You do know these are the same frogs we caught last night. She was like, I don't care. These are delicious. (laughs) She ate more frog legs than anybody. Like she polished off all the eggs. It was ridiculous. But uh, yeah, so we're titling this message Farm to Table because the parable we started last week is about a great banquet, a big table um, that requires the host uh, about halfway through the story to set the table differently. Um, but it also infers a great deal of preparation. The time going into this feast is what actually creates the tension um, in the parable. So we're going to look at the very beginning. This is in Luke 14, verses 16 and 17. It says, Jesus replied with this story. A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent uh, his servants to tell his guests, come, the banquet is ready. So this sounds fairly normal, right? <laughs> By the way, did that story just make me sound like the most redneck person on the planet? I kind of hope so. I was asking Esther, like, do I sound redneck enough in that? But uh, anyway, um, ADD is fun. We might say, um, you know, this is just a story. You pick a date. You prepare for a party, you send out the invitations, and when the date comes, you throw a party. That's kind of what it sounds like. A guy is going to throw a great feast, he invites some people um, when the party's ready. Pretty normal. And I actually performed a wedding yesterday um, in the in the church for a couple that I love so much. It was super cool. I've known the groom since he was like four or five, so it was really cool to be a part of that. But, um, but uh, the and the thing that made it crazier, at least for my schedule is that my fifth oldest son got married last week. So it's been like wedding preparations, like crazy weddings two weeks in a row. It's been a little bit nuts. Um, and both couples got engaged at about the same time, within a few weeks of each other, and both scheduled their weddings within a, few, you know, within a week of each other. And so um, if you've ever been around wedding planning at all, you know that <laughs> from the second those invitations went out, it has been nothing but work. Like it's been crazy preparing for this crazy, uh, you know, weekend. And uh, and this verse has a tendency to sound to me like a man planned a party and he threw a party easy peasy. But that's obviously not what's going on here. Um, in fact, it's never that way. We we talked last week about how in that culture they didn't work by calendars and clocks. They didn't have calendars and clocks. You kind of scheduled a party for fall for harvest. And then when all the preparations were done, you kind of said, and you told people, hey, I'm going to throw a big festival in the fall um, after the harvest is in. And then when you actually got the harvest in and things, then you sent people around to go, hey, the party's ready and it would be a week-long event. It's a big thing. Um, uh, but, um, but honestly, it doesn't even have to be a huge party. Uh, this verse sounds even too casual for like a dinner party. I don't know how many of you can relate to this, but my wife has a tendency to do this. My, my kids and I will ask her, like, hey, what we got going on? Tomorrow, she's like, not nothing really. We just have to get the house ready. We've got people coming over tomorrow night, and we're all like, oh, just have people coming over tomorrow. We just have to get the house ready. Like that's it. We just, this is at our house. Like when we're having people over, it is like a all hands on deck, sprinting, heavy breathing, sweating. Like get the house ready. We have people coming over, kind of thing. So nobody knows how slob, what kind of slobs we actually are. But um. But just get the house ready is not a thing for us. It's like an it's like an ordeal. Just get the house ready. A lot of preparation goes into something like this. 
Dale and Judy are the masters of it. I don't know how they do it, but when you eat at their house, you walk in the door and it's like everything is beautiful and inviting and delicious and the whole thing like screams of hours of work that you don't see any evidence of. It's just smooth, just so you can get loved on. If you haven't eaten at their house, you're, you're missing it. Um, but it's a lot of work to love people. It's a lot of preparation. A lot goes into it. So the first thing we need to recognize this morning is that um, this parable needs to read like this. It needs to read, a man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. Long pause full of really hard work. When the banquet was ready, he sent out servants to, to, to tell the guests, come the banquet's ready. When, a, when the host of this party sends his, you know, for his guests to come, they all have valid reasons not to come. Like they don't, they don't show up. A huge part of kind of his intense anger uh, in his response is most likely motivated by what's in yellow. By the, the effort that went into this. He, he sent out the invitations. A lot of effort went into this thing. And then nobody comes. Um, but the only thing more stressful than planning a big party that no one shows up for is having a ton of people show up for a party you're not, that you haven't planned very well. That you're not prepared for. That can be very stressful. So some of the best wisdom in this parable um, is, is this. A man throws a party and when the banquet is ready... He invites guests. That This speaks of preparation. I was at a pastor's training event several months ago, um, and this pastor's wife um, was talking about the impact of COVID. Uh, and it was springtime. This is back in the spring, and she was talking. Uh, she lives in Michigan, so she was explaining how they had, you know, they were getting ready for, for spring, and they had a shed in their backyard, and that meant emptying the whole shed, getting the, the summer stuff out of the back of the shed and then putting the snow blower and the winter stuff in the back of the shed and putting the summer stuff in the front of the shed so that you can have access to it all summer long. Um, you know, they have brutal winters and then nice summers. So um, she went on to say one of, the, one of the, you know, no one comes out of winter expecting harvest. No one comes out of a winter season expecting harvest. You kind of winter, you know, expecting to, dig out a different set of tools, break ground, amend soil, clean all the old junk out of the beds so that you can plant. Like that's what happens after winter. She went on to say that one of the problems with churches coming out of COVID is that, you know, we, we all came out wanting harvest or at least to be back where we were after one of the longest and coldest winter seasons Amer- the American church has probably ever experienced. She said this is a season for swapping tools and breaking ground and pulling dead stuff out of flower beds. This is a season of making preparations for a new season of harvest. In other words, this is a season of preparation. So let's just start with a little icebreaker. If, if you're at a pod and you don't have anybody with you, find a new pod. Pods, those are fun words. But um, if, you're, if you're at a pod and you don't have people to chat with, move for me so you've got some people to chat with. But talk, talk about preparation, something you've had to prepare hard for in your life. Maybe it's college. Maybe it's an apprenticeship. Maybe it's waiting for Mr. and Mrs. Wright. Maybe it's a pregnancy, saving money for your first house. Something that, that uh, or maybe it's something short, like just studying for a really hard test, but something where the wait was worth it, where it was tough but worth it, where you had to do some major preparation. Go ahead and, and chat with each other. Oh, fam, I'm going to chat with you online. So if you've got, if you've got your phone, I'm going to sit here and chat with you guys. Talk to me.
All right, I hate to cut everybody off, but we've got to move on. So one of the realities that this parable kind of infers is that preparation precedes party, right? You have to get prepared 
first. The Bible, because it was written to a mostly agrarian society, has a metaphor um, for this kind of basic reality that's unpacked several different times, several different ways in the scripture, but it's planting. It's planting. Planting is the ultimate kind of preparation for a future party. In fact, archaeologists and anthropologists consider farming one of the most kind of transitional stages of human development. Hunter-gatherers are kind of of necessity nomadic um, because once they kind of hunt and gather everything they can in an area, they have to move on and find a new area. So they're kind of, uh, this uh, limits many things like the size of clan you can have, the type of shelters you can have. Um, you know, but once humans could do something today that would ensure that they would have food again next year um, in that same place, even if they hunted and gathered everything in that area, um, once you knew you could have food in your area, then you could build sturdier houses and, and, and let your clan grow a little bigger. So they consider this like a transitional moment, the creation of hunting. Um, but I think an even bigger transition had to have taken place that kind of goes deeper into the human psyche because um, in order for your sustenance to come from farming, you, you have to have the ability to work very hard today for a reward you won't see today. You, you have to work very hard today for something that you might not even ever see. You're just kind of hoping that you have a benefit uh, later. There's this terrible verse in Ecclesiastes that speaks to this. It says, just as you cannot understand the path of the wind or the mystery of a tiny baby growing in its mother's womb, you cannot understand the activity of God who does all things. Plant your seed in the morning and keep busy in the afternoon for you don't know if, it will, if any profit will come from one activity or the other. He's just talking about like you plant not even knowing if this is going to work out right. And the, the teacher gets kind of a little poetic and draws a parallel between reproduction and agriculture. But the gist is you plant a seed you do the part you have control of. You make all the preparations, but God takes control after that. That ultimately it's up to God. Um, you don't know if you'll profit from your planting. In other words, preparation requires faith. Planting requires faith. Not like, please God, do all the work, faith. But like, I will do everything I can here. I will put everything I can into this. I've worked hard. I've been faithful. But now, it's in your hands. I can only do so much. Like all of us have worked hard trying to plant something and got nothing from it. Like there's a there's a mysterious part where you put everything into it you can, you do everything just right, and sometimes it doesn't happen. Paul said it this way in in First Corinthians three. He said, "I planted the seed in your hearts, and Apollo watered it, but it was God who made it grow." It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow, and Paul doesn't. Paul says it doesn't matter who plants or grows, but it's kind of important that somebody plants and somebody waters or plants and waters. Um, because here's the deal. Uh, if our only concern is survival, our survival, if our only concern is ourselves, then hunting and gathering is okay. It's fine. You can, you can pick from the garden that God provides and live. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. If your only concern is you. But if you want to set a table and create community, build a village, it starts with breaking ground. And pulling weeds. And in short, preparing the banquet for other people. If you want it to be bigger than just you, you have to put more preparation into it. And the seed is kind of a weird thing. This metaphor that the Bible uses over and over again. The seed had to be like the very first investment opportunity. Like the very first 
You know, and it had to have sounded like a multi-level marketing scam. The first guy that like realized what was going on and pitched it to everybody else. Because you have a handful of seed that you know you can eat. You can crush it up, add some water and animal fat, throw it on the fire, and you're going to have a delicious, heavy bread. And you know that. You know everything in my hand can be eaten and can be sustenance. And along comes a guy going, boy, do I have a deal for you. If you'll let me have half of that seed, I promise you in six months I will hand you ten times as much back. It had to sound like a scam, you know, especially considering the guy basically threw it away. Like you watched him go out and throw it in the dirt. And you had to be like, I just lost my rear end on this deal. It had to feel like a swindle. But the guy buries it. And of course, it couldn't have taken long for people to figure it out that this was a great thing. You eat some, you plant some, and you'll ensure food for the future. You give up some of your seed if you want more seed. But through this process, seed had to become kind of the symbol of potential. Potential. And I'm sure if I was one of those preachers that did the catchy things I would do, preparation, party, potential, all that stuff. But I don't do that. Let's just say no one plants if they don't recognize the potential in the seed. The reason you plant it is because you know there's potential in it. If you don't see potential, if you don't recognize what this seed can be, then planting it's just waste. It's just burying it in the ground. Who buries their food in the dirt? And potential is important because it's so closely attached to hope. Potential is attached to hope. One of the things about having so many kids is the way you kind of watch your understanding of potential change. I remember when Josiah, my firstborn, was a baby. You know, I wasn't sure if I wanted him to be a professional football player or a world-renowned evangelist or maybe the President of the United States or maybe a rock star, depending on his personality. You know, it was really kind of up to him which one of those he wanted to do. You know, because I, I saw nothing but potential in him. Man, this kid can do anything. Look at that. He just stood up. Look how smart he is. You know, just, he was a, just a bundle of potential. I heard a speaker once say, you know, when your firstborn comes into the world, you need to set up two, two funds. Their college fund started immediately. You're going to need it. And their therapy fund because they're the ones that you practice on. So they're going to need some help later. Like you, you, you start the college fund, start the therapy fund, and, and, and that's it. But I saw mounds of potential in my oldest. And then once you get to 16, you're like, you know, I just hope they move out someday. That's really all I'm hoping for at this point. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. The opposite is actually true. After 16 kids, there's still nothing but potential. And you can see so much that God can do in them. You can see, you can see what God wants. To, and, and that's why we put so much energy into raising them. Because we see the potential. We see how much of a harvest could, could come from them. The only reason we, that it, it, we, we dump ourselves into them, the only reason we, we pour so much in is because we know the potential. We know how much is there. It's only when you recognize potential for harvest that burying your seed makes sense. Now it makes sense, which brings us back to faith. But this is also a tension. Because in order for there to be a harvest, like Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, like Paul said in 1 Corinthians, you have to, to, to have the potential inherent in the seed and you need the part that only God can do. And that's the tension. Is, is There is no magic that you can do. You have to do everything you can do. You have to have a good seed. Um, in fact, there's several things we need we're going to talk about in a bit. But, um, but let's just say for this morning that, that everything that is you, your resources, your time, your talent, your emotional investment, you, 
is the seed. Everything you are and everything you have can go two directions. You can consume it or you can invest it. You can take everything that is you and yours and you can live for you. You can also take everything that is you and yours and you can invest it. And here's where the farmers can teach us a lot. Because if you plant all your seed, you starve this year. And if you eat all your seed, you starve next year. So there's got to be a balance somewhere. How much do I consume and how much do I give away? How much do I invest and how much do I eat? On one hand, the, the, the best gift that you can offer the world is the healthiest you that you can create. The, the best thing you can do is invest in yourself and make yourself healthy because then you can be the most, you can have the most impact in the world. To an extent, investing in you is a gift to everyone else. Because the healthier you are, the more help you can be. When anybody who has ever, you know, been in a spot where you're not healthy, either literally healthy or financially healthy or healthy with your time and margins, and then someone needs help and you just can't. You, you, you know what that's like when you're like, the, I can't be a gift in this moment because I'm, I'm too overstretched myself. Sometimes the healthiest, the best gift you can offer the world is the healthiest you you can be. So you have to invest in yourself. And this is where Sabbath and even diet and mental health and education and a million other things comes into play. If you don't invest in yourself, if you, if you don't consume some of your seed, you can't be much help to other people. But if you only invest in yourself, you become a narcissist. And you're also no help to any other people. So there's got to be a balance here. We talked last week about how COVID sort of escalated uh, a trend that was already happening in our society of people disengaging from church. And, and many of them having very legitimate reasons to do so, and most not recognizing that they were part of a, a movement or a trend that was greatly weakening the church in our, in our culture. Um, one of the things we talked about at one of the tables that I joined last week was um, how one of the big Christian polling groups compared regular church attendance in the 70s um, to now. Actually, I think it was 2016, but... Um, and so this is even pre-COVID, but it said that regular church attendance in the 70s was around 80%. Um, and, and now, or in 2016, it was somewhere around 40%, regular church attendance. Um, and that was obviously disheartening to be cut in half in that short of a time. But the truly spooky part of the study was they used definitions that were appropriate to the time period. So regular attendance in the 70s was defined as two to three times a week. So if you were just a once a week person, you didn't even make the cut. If it was a once a week person, it was up around 95%. But they considered regular church attendance back then two to three times a week. And 80% of the population in America went to church two to three times a week. And since that basically applies to almost no one today, like there's almost, like the number would be around zero, they had to change the definition to one to two times a month. For now, if you go one to two times a month now, you're considered a regular church attender. So not only did the church attendance go from 80% to somewhere around 40%, but that 80% is people going 8 to 12 times a month, and that 40% is people only going once to twice a month. And incidentally, the, the number of people who say they're Christian has dropped, but not nearly as dramatically as church attendance. In the 70s, around 90% of the population confessed to being Christian. Um, today, it's around 65 to 70 
So it's dropped, but not nearly as dramatically as church attendance has dropped. Um, like I said, regular church attendance is of one to two times a month is around 40%. So in the parable that, that we're working off of for this series, Jesus talks about a feast and those who were invited, not only not attending, but they were actually contributing to a great movement of people not attending. They couldn't have known this. All they knew is they had a reason not to go. But come to find out, a lot of people had a reason not to go and nobody shows up for the party. Now, believe it or not, I'm not preaching this series to make everybody feel guilty for not attending church. There were some people on the, on the, the OFAM last week, like, oh great, this is the week I choose to stay home. The week Chris picks on everybody. But, uh, but I'm not trying to pressure everyone to show up in this building every Sunday. That's not, um, what this is about. We've titled this series, Setting the Table Differently, because we need to first recognize the trends that are happening in our culture, and then second, figure out how to strengthen, equip, reinforce, and ultimately advance the church in this new environment where Sunday morning is growing less and less protected and more and more difficult to count on. We have to set the table differently. Last week, um, I kind of picked on the OFAM, like I said, by stressing how much we originally set out to do face-to-face church always. Um, we didn't, we didn't want to have a big online presence. We, we only taped the message so that the kids working downstairs, or the people working downstairs with the kids would have something to listen to so they didn't get behind. But, um, but, uh, but I, I'm not picking on our, on our OFAM. That is not what this is about. In fact, I love that we have this option. For, for people. We have some very engaged members in the, uh, at OTCC, um, who can rarely come. Some are all over the nation. Dave, I've, we've been chatting with Dave. Jump in and tell me where you're at today. I didn't see it at the top. Maybe he already told me. He usually, usually throws it in there. Uh, Ruddy, Arkansas. So yeah, Dave can't be here today. He's in Arkansas. Um, and we have a lot of people who can't be here, but I think every single one of us has benefited from their prayers, their gifts, and their commitment to our community. So I am in no way uh, against our own fam. And I love the fact that when people can't make it, they still have a way um, to engage and be a part of us. I think, if anything, we need to find a way to increase our online engagement. Find ways for those people who are joining us online to be a part of us, whether it's reaching out to them more, um, whether it's texting with them more, one way or another. Um, I'm, I'm not suggesting that we use online less. I'm suggesting we find ways um, to increase uh, engagement. Uh, circumstances have kind of dropped this technology in our laps, and now we have to figure out how to use it to the fullest to actually engage people in genuine Christian relationship not just as consumers who check in and watch a service every once in a while, but um, a committed part of our community um, who pulls up to the table that's been set differently. We have to figure out how to make the most of this. I have to be honest, like um, one of the things I thought of this week is my first love in the scripture was the book of Romans. I spent years just, I love the orderly progression of the book that it built on itself and the theology, the rich theology. I fully nerded out on this like, uh, book for years when I first became a Christian. But after 30 years of fairly committed Bible study, I'm a Philippians guy. Like, I feel like I go to the Philippians church. Like, I'm, I'm emotionally engaged in that book. I feel where Paul was at. I feel his connection. Um, I, uh, I, 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 and I also love the parts of the book of Acts where Paul is in Philippi. Like, I'm, like, emotionally connected 
to that church, which is all a fancy way of saying is that in the Bible, we're all part of the OFAM. Like, Paul used the greatest technology at his disposal in the day to spread the gospel, writing, writing. And thank God he did. That's why we have Bibles, is because Paul used whatever technology was available to spread the gospel. He didn't just work face-to-face. He wrote letters and, and used what might seem like impersonal means to, to, to spread the gospel. And I feel like we have the opportunity to do the same. So I'm not suggesting we ever limit, um, or God forbid, eliminate our online presence. But I would love to dream up ways of expanding that community um, and, and making sure that all the people in our OFAM are truly engaged and in relationship. So I'm not trying to pressure everyone to show up every Sunday morning. If, if you're having a rough day, man, get online and join us on there. Jump in the chat bar let us know you're there. Um, so if I made anybody feel bad last week, please forgive me, OFAM. Um, uh, what I'm trying to do is find ways for us all to get more engaged. Uh, I'm saying uh, it's, it's time we start owning uh, that the church is changing and that we need to find a way to be missionaries in this new world, uh, which is actually not so new for most of the world, but it is for most of the globe anyway, but it is um, for us. It's time to start recognizing that the church is not something you just do on Sundays. In fact, that part of church is getting harder and harder to come by. Church is who we are. And that means every single day of the week. Um, and here's what I think that looks like. We ask the question all the time, what if Jesus came back tonight? You know, what, are you ready? You know, whatever that means to be, to be ready. Um, and we're all pretty familiar with that question. You know, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you'd wind up? Many of us grew up in that, in that, uh, evangelical culture. Um, and, and we read headlines all the time, um, and we look at how absolutely crazy our world's gotten, and it's like, surely Jesus has got to return soon. You know, we play the game of, of putting all the pieces together to make sure, um, to see if he's coming back soon. And though I'm fully committed to the fact that Jesus is coming back, and I pray often that it's soon, um, I would like to pose a little different question. Instead of, what if Jesus came back, you know, tonight, do you know where you'd wind up? I'd like to ask the question, um, if Jesus uh, doesn't come back for another hundred years, are we building the kind of church that will still be here? Let's say he doesn't come back tomorrow. Like, is the way we're investing in church the, the, the kind of activity that's going to ensure that the church is still healthy if Jesus waits another 200 years? We have this tendency of playing, hold on, he's coming back any minute, which is a good thing. There's a tension between the two. That's a good thing. But at the same time, if, if, if you're building something, you want to build it to last. And what if Jesus doesn't come back for 100 years? Are we building the kind of church that will be here? Let me ask it this way. Are you building the church you want to attend? Or are you building the church that your grandkids will have the option to attend? Are we building a church that will be here for the long run, that will stand solidly enough on the Word of God that it can resist an ever-changing world, but also flexible enough to reach that world. Flexible enough and, 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 and adaptable enough to actually reach an ever-changing world. Rich and I talked this week, uh, and he planted a fruit tree in his yard, and he said he was kind of wondering if he'll be around to eat that fruit. Like, you know, a lot of us get to that age where you're like, I wonder if I'll be the one who gets to enjoy this, you know, this thing. And, uh, and one of the most inspiring stories, I think, to me about this is King David. Uh, it, it, it actually reads like this. This is when David is dying. It said, Then David sent for his son Solomon 
and instructed him to build a temple for the Lord. The God of Israel, my son, um, or, or the Lord, the God of Israel, my son, I wanted to build a temple to honor the name of uh, the Lord, my God, David told him. But the Lord said to me, you have killed many men in battles that you have fought. And since you have set, shed so much blood in my sight, you will not be the one to build a temple to honor my name. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace. And he, I, I will give him peace with his enemies in all the surrounding lands. His name will be Solomon and I will give him, I will give peace and quiet to Israel during his reign. He's the one who will build a temple to honor my name. He's, he will be my son and I will be his father and I will secure the throne of his kingdom over Israel. Now, my son, may the Lord, uh, the Lord be with you and give you success as you follow his directions in building the temple of the Lord your God. And may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding that you may obey the law of the Lord your God as you rule over Israel. For you will be successful if you are careful to obey the decrees and regulations that the Lord gave Israel through Moses. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or lose heart. I have worked hard to provide materials for the building of the temple of the Lord. Nearly 4,000 tons of gold, 40,000 tons of silver, as much iron and bronze that you can't be weighed. I have also gathered timber and stone for the walls that you may need, uh, but you may need to add more. You have a large number of skilled uh, stonemasons and carpenters and craftsmen of every kind. You have expert goldsmiths, silversmiths, workers of bronze and iron. Uh, now begin the work, and may the Lord be with you. Then David ordered all the leaders of Israel to assist Solomon in this project. All David wanted in the world was to build God a temple. It was the first thing he said when he got to Jerusalem. I want to build God a temple. I, I have this nice house now. God is out in a tent. I want to put him in a temple. And God said, no, you're not the one. Not going to happen. Love the idea, but it won't be you. And most of us would do one of two things in this moment. We would either build it anyway, because we don't like to hear no. Um, any of those? These like, stubborn people that just keep butting your head against the wall? Yeah. Um, or we would just, well, that's not me. You know, and we'd walk away. Like, not my, not my job. I've got other things to do. Um, but David does something that few will do, and our world could use a lot more of. He spent the rest of his life saving and investing and growing and gathering and giving to build something that he would never see, that he would never get to use. He, he spent the rest of his life preparing for a temple he would never get to worship in. It's crazy. David knew that he could consume all that he had, his time, his resources, his energy. He could, in essence, eat it, eat the seed that he had, or he could plant it. And pray for harvest. And David chose to plant that seed. He saw the potential of having a place for Israel to come and worship all together. Where God could gather them together in a single location where kind of heaven and earth can overlap. As far as David was concerned, the harvest was, was as good as, as, uh, as anything. As there could, there could be. The potential in Jerusalem was enough for him to invest in it. And so he, he invested in that potential. He planted that. So there are several things that, that are needed for seed to grow, for, in, for investments to grow, for anything to grow. And I'm not a green thumb type person, so I don't pretend to be an expert at growing things, but I do um, know that apart from the mysterious part that only God can do, 
what the author of Ecclesiastes so eloquently explained. Um, I do know uh, that you need not only a good viable seed, but you need good soil. Good soil. Um, you can have the best seed on the planet uh, and, and you can plant great seed and if you plant it in terrible soil, nothing grows. You have to have good soil. Um, and you have to have healthy soil. Um, or maybe a better way of saying that is you need to put, um, this, you need to surround the seed with healthy environment if you want to grow something and for that seed to reach its real, its, its true potential. Um, we talked about the tension between consuming your seed versus planting your seed. Um, and how sad would it be to, to invest part of your seed in poor soil and never get a harvest? To, to, to have it in hand and sacrifice it, uh, only sacrifice it in the wrong place and, and not get a harvest. So, not talking about seed specifically, but Jesus talked about this directly when he said, watch where you lay up your treasures. Don't lay them up on earth where they can you know, disappear. Our investment, our seed, our time, our energy, our lives. Watch where you put that. You can put it all here where it can, where it can vanish or you can invest it in heaven where it's truly safe. Where you bury your seed matters. Where you put it matters. You have to have good soil. And this is why I think community is so important. Community, people is the, 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 your, your connections, your support system. This is the, the soil that, that you bury the seed of your life in to reach potential. If you surround yourself by the wrong people, all the potential in the world will come to nothing. If you surround yourself, if you plant yourself in the wrong place, all the potential in the world will come to nothing. But maybe even worse, if you have the right soil available and, and, and not be planted, because in order to see growth, there's something else you have to do. You have to actually plant the seed. You have to actually let go of it. You have to actually do it. You have to actually release it. And that's the hard part. You can't, you can't plant a seed and then dig it back up to see if it's growing. Like, does it have a seed? Nope. Put it back. Dig it up. Put it back. No. You have to actually let go of it. You have to trust. You have to, you have to release. You can't dig it up and replant it. Dig it up and replant it. Dig it up and replant it and expect it to grow. You have to have patience. You can't see for a long time that anything is happening. That's the hardest part about, about, you know, planting. And it had to, it had to be brutal for the first people to learn how to do this. To put it in there and nothing happens. You have to let it go. Our lives are the same way. Community doesn't just happen because you put yourself in the same room with other people. You can stand in a room full of people and experience no community. It can happen and it happens all the time. To, to really be planted in good soil, you have to actually give your life away. You have to actually invest it. You have to actually like release the protective hold you keep on, on things and become vulnerable. In seed language, you have to die. You have to actually be cracked open and laid bare in order for something to grow. Paul talks about that. In order for a seed to grow, it has to die. It has, to, it has to surrender itself. And this is true of so much in our lives. Like you don't know, you don't have any idea what your smile can do until you let it go. You have no idea what your encouragement can do until you let it go. 
You have no idea what your gifts and talents can produce until you actually invest them. You don't know what your faith can accomplish until you put it in something and spend it. Nothing grows by holding on to it. You have to plant it. So how do we respond to this? Setting the table differently at OTCC starts with community. It's always going to start with community. Our vision statement is to become a community of people organized by and around the Word of God to cooperate in the mission of God of advancing the kingdom of God. It all starts with becoming a community of people. Our vision is built on community. And as our culture continues to make Sunday mornings less and less protected, finding ways to be and become community is going to grow ever more important. We have to do life together. This is why things like small groups and men's and ladies groups grow really important. It doesn't even have to be that formal. It can be having coffee, grabbing lunch, having dinner with your church family. Begin to serve the, all of this begins to serve the vision of the church of doing life together, making a phone call, sending a text. Catching the Sunday morning sermon, you know, is growing increasingly easy with technology and that can keep us on the same page with the rest of the church, which is great, but we need community. And oftentimes Sunday morning is not even the best time to do that. We come in, I do most of the talking and we leave. Like sometimes in order for us to know each other and to be there for each other, we have to invest the time. We have to let go. Real time invested in real people. Esther and I have been experimenting with just having our house open and available so we can spend more time with people. But honestly, we need other people to do that. We need people in church just hanging out with each other, learning how to, to talk about their lives together, learning how to share what's, what's going on in their worlds together, building real relationships. We need to be doing life together. And we also need to be spending more of our time that we do have here at the church when we can, building real relationships. And this is what we'll be talking about next week because in order for us to use our space to its full potential, to serve the vision of our church, to serve the why, in other words, we need to finish our space. Namely, we need to finish our kitchen, which means some investment. And I'll be explaining more about this next week, which includes some really exciting news so you don't want to miss next week. See what I did there? Um, But we need to use this great space better. Like when we first designed this space, we designed these great fellowship spaces so that people could come up for Bible studies and and moms could hang out downstairs while their kids played in the nursery. We set up a whole living room area so they could drink coffee and, and we set up the coffee space so that people could use this space. We, this, is, this is supposed to be community space that we can use. We have a lockbox on the front door so that anybody can, can, can make a call. Hey, we're going to have a Bible study up at the church. We're going to meet for coffee up at the church and blah, blah, blah. It's always available. But part of that means we need to finish some of the things. It's, it's really kind of a pain sometimes to do things here when you can't even wash a dish afterwards. It's, it's kind of a pain. When we first started the church, we used to eat together after every service. We, we, had, we had dinner together. We'd do church and we'd sit in the cafeteria and, and eat. And this was a crucial relationship building part. And I honestly miss that. And I don't know that we'll be able to go back to that because it also means a lot of cleanup and it, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. But we need to do some meals together. We need to spend time eating together. We need to, we need to find ways to be together more. And, it, and, it, and we can't rely on just the old come to church on Sunday morning because that's getting harder and harder and harder. And it's not going to go the other way. 
it looks like we're gonna uh, we're gonna be hosting a small group at the church here um, on Thursday nights. It's gonna be open for anybody to come. We're gonna uh, rotate teachers doing different studies, so um, so that way we can kind of advertise we're gonna be doing this study. And if you just want to come for a study at a time, or if you want to come every Thursday night, we just want the doors to be open. Uh, and we'll have we'll find a way to have some snacks, but boy, that'd be a whole lot easier when we get the kitchen done. Um, but we'll dive into the details of that next week. But for this week, the way I'd love to respond to this message is to wrestle with the question of what do you do with the seed of your life? I'm, just talking, I'm not just talking about your money and resources. I'm talking about you, your time, your talent, your energy, your emotional invested. Where are you planted? Do you mostly just consume your seed? Whatever you, you have is spent on your life, your future, your well-being. That's understandable. But nothing new grows from that. But if what you really want, what you really recognize you need is growth, then, then you need planting. Are you planting? Are you diving in? Are, are you saying, I'm, I'm all in. These are my people. I'm going to show up. Whether it's on church or online or on a Zoom call or over coffee or at dinner, even if my house isn't clean, or on a phone call, or whatever, I'm going to show up. We live in a world with, with a million ways to connect with people, and we use those great tools to hide instead. Gamble. Make yourself vulnerable. Plant some seed. No matter how we set the table differently, if we don't start with our own hearts and our own time, nothing will ever change. There's no gimmicks to setting the table differently. The pod thing only works for so long. There's no little little tricks you can pull. Setting the table differently it means to fulfill our vision as a church. And to do that, we have to invest in one another. That's right.